Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hi there, Bold Becomer audience. Just giving a short introduction to this two-part series. This is going to be part two of Jorge Bautista's interview about his life in prison. Uh, Last week, we talked about his early life and how he ended up in Pelican Bay State Penitentiary. And this week, we're going to talk about prison life and his transformation in prison that he never expected, nobody expected it, and his release process, and a little tiny bit about what it feels like to be out for six months after serving, he was in from age 18, and now he's 50 years old. So I hope you love it, and give it a listen. So when I go to prison now, I essentially say goodbye to my street life. I say good. I wanted to say goodbye to my family, I, 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 not for lack of trying, I essentially tell me, you're never going to come and visit me 750 miles. I'm in the furthest prison away in California. Just don't come. Please don't come. It's not worth it. And you can't tell that to a mother. And you, your mom will never hear, they want to hear that, you know. And, and luckily for me, they, they were stubborn and never gave up on me, even when I didn't deserve it. And, you know, the different shift that happened, that's another shift in my life. I was embracing everything. I made that choice. I I willfully accepted that change. You know, like I, I could have resisted. I could have, you know, there's people that actually decide to not embrace that life. But I, I willfully chose that life because that's that's the life that I believe was going to get me by through my prison term. I I. I I righteously thought that I eventually would die in prison, either an old man or by an enemy, you know, and it, it was not worth retaining any form of hope that one day I was coming back to society. And that that caused me many years and many, many years in isolation for committing accidents within prison that were, you know, under the rules and regulations of the prison, uh, CDCR, um, deemed me a very dangerous inmate, and I was, and, and essentially I was just lost, lost and angry, and and had accepted that life, my fate of never coming home. What what is how do you do how does that happen? Because uh, you you know you were you were free, and then now, and you're still a kid. Yeah, and 19. you're like. The rest of your life in prison. How how does a person internalize that I, that I, change? I for me, I try not to think. I I, I didn't try to think so much into the future. I never mm. made plans for the future. Okay. I wanted to live now and in the moment. And I think if I caught up. I got caught up trying to think of the future. I allowed myself at times when I was in the hole to think of what life would have been had certain 
things in my life being different where I didn't end in prison. But those were the moments when I would get the most depressed. And I will try and avoid de getting depressed or sad by having or thinking of happy times or, you know, that those were those were dangerous for me because I, at a very young age, I would get depressed or, or and that's something that you couldn't afford to do in prison at, at the way I saw it, you know. You what to, happens if you get depressed in prison? Well, I don't think because to be in a maximum security prison, you, you have to develop this sense of hypervigilance. You have to be aware of all your surroundings. You can't be walking around moping or feeling sorry for yourself or being sad. Or a lot. You can't even afford to get depressed because the moment you do that, you, you're, you start acting, you start... Uh, you start acting differently where you become suspicious. People start believing you're weak at weak, any moment. Yeah. Yet at any moment, you might do something that's not that's not very um, approved. Like so, a lot of I, some of the people that usually will get in such a state either would consider locking it up. You know, they go, you know, I can't be in general population. Take me out of these yards, and and you live in such a state of hyper vigilance that you know that that you couldn't afford to allow yourself to get depressed or sad or angry because it, it interfered with, you know, your, 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 your sense of having to be alert at all times, you know? Wow. That's, um, It's that hard. Is, to, it's really yeah. hard to wrap my mind around it. I've I've actually only been in. I've been in two different prisons as a visitor. Uh, one one I went to like every Sunday to this Vietnam War veteran. He wasn't a veteran. He yeah. went AWALT okay. in Vietnam, and then he was hiding out at our neighbor's house. And then he decided to turn himself in. So then he was in the Presidio prison. And so we would drive up to San Francisco and visit him on Sundays. And, and they would, they would, and then eventually he escaped. And the way people <laughs> escaped from there was, um, and so I was just a little girl. I, I, I just remember I hated it because I had to wear a dress because I was a girl. I was like, this is <laughs> this is some stupid ass rules. <laughs> oh my god. But they would they would help each other escape by somebody slitting their wrist. And then all the attention would go there. And then you know, whoever was gonna escape would go and escape. So I saw I saw that, you know, just waiting room of the prison. And then also I, in Colombia, I went and visited a neighbor who had ended up in prison. Now that's a whole nother story, mm. <laughs> not for this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was in 1976. They didn't have cells. <laughs> they, they, they cool. all just sort of like, when we were kids, we would put up, we would make little forts where, where we'd, you know, put up ropes and and blank hang blankets and stuff, and and it was like this whole gymnasium sized thing of people with their little cubicles makeshift with blankets and stuff. It was really, really no. something else. 
but um yeah it's just really it's like i can't even fathom how a person adapts it's just so far from my um my experience so you were in so i appreciate you you know giving these details because it's not every day that that people get to hear about this and so then you're in prison you're you've become this person who fits in you're making your life in prison and then you had and and you had no like motivation to rehabilitate which is what no. prisons say that they do which is complete like let's not even go there it's like completely ridiculous and to and to be in you know on amongst all the lines and I remember when i say that pelican bay was a very punitive place pelican bay had not one single rehabilitative program there so i didn't i didn't know what that meant and what they did have was aa or chapel nobody went to aa nobody went to, well the people that went to chapel were considered people and sad to say there were people that were weak they were like people that are they're trying to escape the realities of prison mm. and we view people that went to chapel very suspicious and like you know you would stay away from guys that would consider themselves christians think about that think about that sadly and some might have some dudes some hid and i'm not saying all of them and i but and the way that we we process that is that once you make you were officially saying that you were a Christian, you're telling us that you don't want to participate in prison activities that you're hiding behind the Bible. That's that was the mentality. And I, and so people who were considered Christians were usually viewed very suspicious. And those were the only things that were allowed any form of like, let's say that had any uh, ounce of rehabilitative uh, program, but it was in a program people. It was sort of like a refuge. You know, and I didn't did nothing to process anything that you ever did. Palomar did not have one single thing for my the entire nineties. I spent the entire nineties basically in a hole, and and I I eventually would come out for a little periods of time before the next riot broke out. And guess what? <laughs> Whenever a riot happened, my door would crack, and I had to be out in the yard with the enemies and. And that's that was the life that I like you like you said I I I be I adapted I made myself useful to uh, the prison life and to and within that I, I that's and I paid very dearly with years and years of my life in the hope for things that I did and 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 unfortunately you know in that process I I continued to victimize other people in prison my enemies you know the way i saw it, but there were at that time i didn't see them as human beings i just tagged them as enemies you know and and i for a very long time i continued living that way in prison and so then your redemption started you know right? um this is and i think it's it's this is the the one of the hardest things that I've had to to reconcile with because um it didn't happen it wasn't planned it I didn't make a conscious choice I said you know what I'm going to change my life it didn't happen that way 
so what it, how it happened for me was that one of the times that was actually on general population they the tower wrecked my door open which was weird because i didn't have a job and i wasn't going to school so i didn't understand why my door was being open and he tells me batista which is my last name i go yes there's someone here to see you and i remember thinking like what like i didn't understand so there's somebody in the rotunda so i had to exit the section and so as I'm making it to the rotunda, he goes, hey, somebody here to see you in that office. And I look in, and I remember seeing a chaplain. I, I could tell it was a chaplain because he was. And so I go and goes, uh, your name is uh, Bautista Jorge? And I go, yes. Hey, can you sit down? And I'm going to like, everyone knows that when you get called by a chaplain, it's usually they're telling you there that somebody in your family died. Okay. And so as I'm walking in, I'm. I'm bracing myself for him to tell me that something happened to my mom or something happened to my dad. And so he first asked me to like, he makes sure that it's that I am the right person he's, he, he's there to see. And he tells me, he asked me a question. He asked me if I, if I knew Victor Bautista, which is my little brother. My younger brother, I always call him little brother because he was younger than me. And so he goes, well, look, I, I received a call and I was asked to come and tell you. And I'm the one that needs to tell you, but um, your brother got shot last night. And I didn't, I it didn't compute. Like, I, like he's, I, I didn't understand what he was telling me. So he tells me like, Victor? He goes, yes, are you sure? Like Victor, like I'm, I'm shocked because my brother was in, in a street gang. And then he tells me, and the, my initial reaction was like to ask him, like, is he okay? He's okay. Mm -hmm. And then he tells me, and I remember, he goes, well, unfortunately, you, your brother passed away. Mm -hmm. And I could, what I remember the most is, I, I know he kept talking, but like what he said that he, he had died, it, I, I didn't understand it. Like, why? Like, so many questions and like, to me, he's like, I didn't understand this. So my first reaction, like, I'm trying to tell the tower if he could let me back in my cell. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to hear the rest of it. You know, he, he, this guy just told me something, and I have to like verify it. I have to call my family. I have to call my family because the previous night I had, I had talked to him. Mm. He was, he was with his kid. He, had, he had a three-year-old son and a ten-year-old daughter. Oh, wow. And I, and so to me, I was like. What do you mean? He's a, like everything that I knew about my brother. Who would want to kill my brother? He's kind of like, what do you mean? He's a father. He has a kid. Like, what do you mean he's dead? And so I remember the chaplain saying to you, you need to talk to somebody. I go, nah, man. Like I, I was in that mindset. Like, what do you mean talk to somebody? Like, I don't talk to chaplains. <laughs> and so I got up and then I'm walking back to the return. The, the, the tower officer is keeping an eye on me. He goes, and I look up and I tell him, hey, can I use the phone? And at that time in that year, we weren't allowed to use the phone during the day. It's usually they had specific slots where the, the time to use the phone are in specific strict times. And she goes, yeah, we've already been notified. Uh, you can hop on the phone. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he told me, yeah, right away, I knew something was true. There was something true to it because they don't allow you to get on the phone. Right, he's um, making an exception. And so I went directly to the phone. And I call my house, and as soon as they pick up, the other line picks up, it's my brother. 
And usually I could detect noise in the background and I'm hearing people crying and and like my I, I knew right away my my fears, my worst fears just like what? And I'm telling Martin, I told my youngest brother, Martin, what happened? What happened? What's what's up with Victor? Like I still want to hear, like, oh, he's still alive, he just got mm -hmm. shot. My mind is not doesn't know how to process this. Mm -hmm. And my brother tells me, Hey, I'm sorry. Like he couldn't even get out the words. He says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Somebody killed Victor. I tell somebody shot him. And I go, who would that like? Who? What? And like where? Like everything, like. And he's just crying and crying. And like, I don't remember much of the conversation, but I do remember like as soon as he he was crying, like I had never heard my brother crying. Hmm. And I couldn't talk to anybody in the house because nobody was in, like in the right mind. And I just remember like my whole world just came down like, because he was the first of us males to give my mom and dad a, a, a Bautista kid. <laughs> and my I had sisters, but you know how the family, like you don't understand like how proud I was of my brother. And, and I couldn't think of some other human being trying to take my brother's life mm -hmm. and now i'm forced to take that walk back to myself stuck up all my feelings and that and that and not showing any kind of weakness and i just remember walking in myself and at that time i had a sadly and he tells me hey what's wrong with me what's wrong with you? nah not right now man not right now i don't i can't i don't want to talk to you and I just jump on my bunk and I put a, a washcloth on my face, but he knew something was wrong. He knew right away because the chaplain had called me out. Mm -hmm. And then the best way we met communicate, say, oh, me, you okay, man? You, you want me to leave you alone? I go, yeah, if I would. And he goes, what's up, homie? He goes, and I told him, I just remember saying it for the first time out loud. He goes, somebody just killed my brother. And I just... I remember how us prisoners inside talk about the crimes that we commit, the things that we do to our so-called enemies, you know? And it, it, it doesn't register that we essentially destroyed a family, that we took in their father, their son. None of that ever comes to our minds. Because in our minds, he's just a gang member. And I'm pretty one, sure. One dimensional. Yes. And I'm pretty sure that I don't know uh, that the guy who, who took my brother's life perhaps thought the same way. But that I hadn't processed that yet. The first thing I thought I had a lot of anger. And I didn't, I did not know how my mother and my father were going to be able to get through this. And to me, I think that was the very, very beginning of me not loving the person I was. And the person I was at that time was somebody that still thought as getting even or killing another human being was something that was acceptable. Mm -hmm. that, that if you lived a life, if you were in a game, that you ran the risk of losing your life. But I remember just thinking, like, that's my brother. No matter what he did, he had a family that loved him. He had kids. And 
I had experienced his death differently because although I had lost family members in the time I was locked up, this hit me differently because my parents flew in to see me for the next two months. Every weekend, I was getting pulled out by different family members. My mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my brother's kids. And every single person was affected differently. His kids were confused. My mom was destroyed. My sister had so much guilt. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I think one of the things that all of this, the first thing that hit me so hard was my mom became obsessed with how he was murdered. And she will give me these details that I didn't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, that was a time I was so confused because I was angry that somebody did to, but I couldn't say nothing because it was the first time I would tell them, damn, you did this to somebody else. You did this to a mother. You did it to somebody's brother, to somebody's sister. And nothing brought that to my mind so clearly as one day when I was in visiting with my mom telling me, she kept telling me that my brother got killed worse than a the dog. They left him to die in the sidewalk. They took forever to get him. And and I, I essentially had the, that to my victim. I walked up to him on the sidewalk, and I don't know if his mother processed his death the same way as my mom was processing my, my brother's death, but that, I remember turning to look at my mom, and I was telling mom, mom, I did the same thing to somebody else. And I didn't want her to, I didn't want her to be so angry. And I just told her, Bob, please don't say that. Because I, she was more obsessed with how he died. And, um, and she was so weak. She lost weight. She wouldn't eat. She wouldn't sleep. And so now I got a front row seat to the harm that was committed, that I committed to another family. So not only was I mourning my brother's death, but I had so much guilt. And it was brought to me like in a very drastic way. I didn't, I just didn't know what to do after that. I remember being in my cell and that night we were gonna have day room and, I, and my cellie say, just stay back, just stay back. I go, no, nah, man. And I remember going out to the day room and trying to pick a spot where to sit. And one of my friends had already known and I remember him coming up to me and giving me a hug and say, hey, let it out, homie. It's okay. And I refused to cry because I, I still wanted to hold all my feelings did. And that was the very beginning of what I ultimately would change my whole life. In prison, I dared to project how I felt about what I had done for so long I didn't I didn't admit how I didn't know the far breaching con the, the harm that I had done and for how long and now that I was experiencing everything 
that my family was going through, that I was going through, I didn't know how to process that. I really didn't. I know that talking about street crimes, uh, hearing rap songs that talked about shooting people, that 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 suddenly overnight did not become funny to me. All of that, all of that. Not entertainment me. anymore. And it was such, it was such, it, it was hard for me to process. I didn't, you know, when, when you don't have example of change, you don't know how I struggled so long with it. And I carried that guilt for a long time inside my heart. And I remember having gone to the hole about a month right after my brother's death. And I was so glad because I didn't want to be around people. I just wanted to be by myself for so long. And I remember I went to the hole for what should have been 30 days and ended up being in the hole for over four years. And the what ended up happening with me was because I had such a, I had such repeated true terms that they considered me a threat to general population because I had shown repeated uh, instability. That my 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 every time I was released to the general population, I I was acting out, and they they applied what it's called an indeterminate true term. And what and any all the other people that went to the hole with me only did like a month, and I remember staying there for almost four years because I had to go every year to a panel and say, "Now nah, we don't believe you. You've changed. You stay in there." And in my mind, I didn't really care. Like I was comfortable in the hole. I was very like I had a, I had already known how to do the whole time. But what happened was being in the hole by myself and no one else to blame for my life. That's when the real changes started happening with me, my mentality and and processing everything that my family was going through. I even felt guilt, like I I I even felt wrong for for mourning my brother because who am I to mourn when I had done this to somebody else? Interesting. And I just remember that when I got out the hole that. I I I don't think I did it consciously. I just stopped hanging around individuals that started talking the way that I, I had grown to detest. And because I felt like every time we talked about anything about gang life, I I I, I picture somebody killing somebody. And I picture what I did and I had and, and I played it over and over in my head and and my victim became very human to me from that day forward. And this was even way before some of the programs that I became that allowed me space to share how I felt because that played a great role in me becoming the person I became later on in life. The moment I was able to articulate some of the feelings because I was, mind you, I didn't know how to communicate very well. I, I, I was so used to keeping everything to myself. You know, and for, I would say the next, 15 years, I went from somebody who had got into trouble, had got like 16 write-ups for violent acts to just two in the next 15. I, I no longer cared what people thought about how many crimes they committed in the street, how much money they made off drugs, 
all of that to me just didn't hold my interest anymore. And I had already done a good job at isolating myself for so long, even when I was participating in things, it was just part of who I was. I, I, I would retreat into myself, but this time I was doing it without any interest and drugs, drinking, it just happened. It happened gradually for years and years and years. And when Pelican Bay around eight to 10 years ago brought programs on in, it was, I didn't even think about twice going there. Hmm. It was hard for me to share some of the stuff out of fear of what people would think of me. I -hmm. still had that fear that people would see me as weak. Mm-hmm. And it started with change, sharing thoughts about how I experienced. This my is life. now. This is now a program has come yes. to help people process what yes. you know what's gone and I, on in their life. And and some of some of the programs that were brought there were not as good as some of the ones that perhaps uh, other institutions had. But guess what? In, in one of the institutions now, guess who's going? Guess who's the person that's going to a program called Choices? You have to make a commitment for fifty something weeks. Um, guess who's a person who's enrolling in to celebrate recovery? Guess who became a person that was going to an LTAP program? To a to, what program? Uh, an LTAP program was a program specifically designed for people who were doing life terms. Mm. Uh, based, uh, you had to be assigned by your counselor to one of those programs, and then and and so one day I walk into a group and there's a group of twelve, and all of us had already been down twenty years and up, and the youngest guy had only been down fifteen years. Think about that. That that was a youngster for us, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I can remember us like looking at each other and not really trying to impress each other with the gang lives and having a safe space where we were able to communicate some of our worst fears, our regret, our remorse. And it was such a sacred place for us that I can remember by the time that that class ended, the LTOP class ended, it's called Long-Term Offender Program. And I can remember us hating that the, the, the class was coming to an end yeah. because we had unloaded so much of our burdens and our some of our um, deepest shame that we sort of protected. And mind you, this was a safe place for guys of different races that we never would talk to each other. So was, this is this is where yes. what 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 said in the group stays in the group confidentiality Absolutely. this now this is this is serious no and this is very very not it wasn't it wasn't for the guys that weren't willing to share very intimate details of their traumas past lives regrets and i remember taking my first steps and describing how i felt how remorseful and regret grateful I was for committing my crime that for so I was more regret I was more I regretted not having connected with the harm I had done for so long and I remember the counselor of the group the facilitator once telling me like you know regrets and remorse mean nothing 
and the sorrows don't mean nothing if you do do something with your life you could say it as much as you want but unless you you change your life and the way you see things it's not going to mean nothing and i remember some reason that's sticking for me so long and so because it's words and concepts versus how being different right is that what they were getting at and and saying like you can say it all you want but if you still go out to 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 the basketball court and your first instinct is to beat somebody else who you feel disrespected to then you still view violence as something acceptable to you i had like those groups made us reevaluate our thoughts the way we acted and the source of where do you think that came from? And and for the next six to seven years, I, I went down a path where I did timelines after timelines and going back into my past. And now I'm able to, like where when I speak of you today, I would have never spoke to anybody before, but I had years of taking graduate swaps and I remember dumping in each in each group or class dumping one layer of shame one and then to find the one that held me back was the most was the ones that i feared that people would judge me for for having uh, um such a, a an experience i had as a child be something to go for for some reason i felt ugly inside for so long like I had a secret that nobody knew. And I remember um, sharing in one of the classes and after finished doing, saying my testimony, the last thing that held me back in my life, the class is turning and looking at me and coming up to me and hugging me and telling me that it took balls for me to share what I had done. And they see me as a real man. And uh, I remember after that, like I still had. Wait a minute to share what you had done. They done what? They all knew that you had murdered someone. But what I was now speaking of, this was not the 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 shame that I spoke of in that class. I opened up to them of, of a time when I was a child when I was sexually abused. Oh. And and having internalized that for so long and blaming my father for it because he put us in a position where this person could harm me. Oh. And we were doing a session in forgiveness. And I, I believe that I, they ate me up for so long that I felt ashamed that I blamed my dad for it. He had no knowledge of it. I believe that if I would have been able to open up to him, that he would have done something about it. But because as a child, I have learned to keep everything to myself. I never opened up to him. So I'm here with a group of men telling them that I wanted to, I was so regretful for blaming my father for it, that I forgive him. And I needed to forgive myself because even though I, I blamed him, it was something that I regretted to blaming him because it was a cause of a lot of anger that I had towards him. And I had to get at the roots of why I felt so angry at my father. I blamed him for it. And he didn't deserve that anger. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't, he didn't have, he didn't have anything to do with it, but I blamed him. And so it was a session in forgiving myself. And I can remember forgiving yourself for basically not forgiving him and not forgiving yourself. For being angry at the wrong person, for okay. blaming the wrong person, 
And I believe that was the source of a lot of fights of me and my father. I would just, I would have so much hate towards him. How old were you when this happened? I was nine years old. And it was a family member that did this to me. And, and I can remember sharing that in class that I, I needed to get past that. And the following day. That's a day, biggie. <laughs> I, I, I remember the following day walking down the yard and seeing two guys from the same group and feeling so fearful that for some in my mind, they're telling everybody, oh, look, did you know the homie got sexually abused? Did you know? And I was so fearful. And I remember going to the usual spot where I hang out. And one of the guys goes up to me. And he never used to do this to me, but he goes up to me and hugs me. He starts hanging out with me. And I... So he comes up and hugs you is what you said? Yes. Uh, and and this is not the normal behavior. On the yard. And this, is, this is, isn't in the group. This is outside of the yard. And, and is like, this a different racial person? No, no, it was a single, but I've actually got hugged by other races on the yard from the same group. Wow. And I, I took that as somebody telling me, you're my friend. I will never betray you. Don't worry about it. You're, you're still the guy I look up to. And so you were ashamed, you were ashamed of having said that and you were afraid that they were going to spread it and then people in the prison could use it against you? Well, I, it just, nobody wants to... Nobody wants outside the setting of the group that you're in. Nobody wants for their business to be out there like that because you feel like people are going to be like, oh, well, they got, the guy that got molested. There's the guy that, you know, and you, you, I did it as an exercise to forgive myself. And I didn't know whether I had a fear if some of the members of the group were somehow you weaponize that by you know making fun of me or something and and the op the opposite was true of that and i'll tell you this julie i remember that being the last of one of the mo the shames that i carried around for so long that i became so confident in who i had become by then i, I was a person who volunteered in 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 prison to for charities who went to, I essentially did every single group that Pelican Bay ever had by the time I went to the parole board. I had gone 10 years without any write-up, violent write-up, but I, I, I was happy with myself. I wasn't doing it believing that I'm gonna come home. I had essentially got in touch with who I was as a human being. And I was just glad that all the things that held me back were outside, I had purged myself of them in the many groups that I had gone to. And I would, even as I spent the rest of my life in prison, I had become a person free of pain and free of shame. And I was confident in the person that I had become in there. Wow, not, there's not a lot of people on the outside can even say that. But, but it, it, it took, it came with a lot of fear it came with a lot of growth. Uh, I had to get out of that comfort zone that I was where like I had to, I, I didn't necessarily, it was okay to seek help, advice. Um, I developed a very good bond with my counselor. I would, when like she would, she was like, she was somehow I became this other person, like a person that perhaps with all the layers that held me back from being friends with somebody of another race, from 
being able to communicate with my counselor to get a job around correction officers. I will stay away as far as away for so many years from there. And so over the many years that I had got comfortable becoming that person, my peers, my prisoner peers, actually sort of started patting me in the back, started saying, man, you're a good dude, man. You don't belong in prison. But I would smile at them. I knew they were saying that because that was validation that I, had be, I, I was no longer that person that harmed people. That's the mm -hmm. way I processed it. And then when programs like ARC and Hustle 2.0 came in and made us believe that it was possible to come home, they developed certain programs where like, look, I remember, I, I know you're familiar probably with Catherine Hoke and John Jackson, where they brought this uh, curriculum where they asked us to envision ourselves five years from now. And I knew I had a parole board. What would be the best uh, outcome that you wish that could happen? And, and I would say, oh, that I, I re that I get to hug my mom as a free man. But to me, that was just a wish, you mm -hmm. know. But then came the hard work. What could make that happen? Oh, no. And then some of the old things will resurface, my insecurities. Well, they worked a lot. Some of the curriculum helped me to get rid of those insecurities. And because if you go show up to the board and they get to see the person that we know, I guarantee you, you will make it home. Imagine somebody telling you that, a civilian, not an officer. It's somebody. And so I'm like, you don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, the last three to four years were those years where I began to try to envision that. And I shared this previously with, with you briefly. There was a lot of doubt, but I, there was no doubt to who I wanted to be, of the, the human being that I had become. I, I was going to stay committed to the person that I was then. But and one of the sessions that I was with the group and one of the facilitators was sharing, was trying to give Inspire Hope. Mind you, uh, Julie, there had been not one single person in Pelican Bay Yard that was doing a life turn that had ever been granted parole. And Wait, say that again. There was what not year is one this? Single, this was uh, this was 2020 at that time when I was in that class. It was 2021, and uh, at that time, the, I had not met one single person that had been granted parole from a maximum facility level for 180. Usually, the people usually wait, the wait a person with a life. What's 180? 180 are uh, maximum security prison designs meant for the people who are uh, who have accumulated a lot of negative points. And they don't hold no, and in order, they only hold people who have what you would call a classification system with a lot that have over the years racked up a lot of points. And I was never going to see a level three based on points. Never. And usually the people that went home were all from level threes or level twos and level ones. They have different classification yards and different prisons. And I had spent three decades in Pelican Bay. And that was the thing that was a voice that I was creeping to me. You've never been to a level three. You're never going to be in a level three. You're, they're not going to let you go. What are you talking about? 
And so that there was a voice that existed in my head that would tell and, me that. And nobody else had ever left. I had never, I had never met. There had been somebody in Ayor and the other facility within that prison. I believe there was two different individuals that had got crying in parole, but nobody in the in the B yard. That was one of the most notorious yards at one point in all of California, where murders happened, where violence. If you were there, guess what? When when parole boards commissioners showed up, you're in B yard, Pelican Bay. <laughs> what are you still doing there after 20 years? Why aren't you in another prison? Why aren't you in another institution? You know? It meant you just kept committing more crimes, serious, yeah. Even, and, and you weren't changing. So by the time I went to the parole board, you think of how bad a person I had become in prison, that even though I had not committed a violent act in 10 years, I still had level four points and a 180. And I would essentially have to do another five to 10 years clean to even make it to a level three. And so, but like I was telling you earlier, I was this completely different person, not for the, not for the purpose of wanting to prove to the board that I wanted to call home and that I was ready. I was, I, I was already comfortable with a person that I had become in there, a person who, who could walk to the yard, go work to a wrong correction officer as a clerk, go go to all these groups and in, in some cases become leader of, of, a, of a, within a small subgroup of, of recovery groups. They started, hey, well, you're going to be the leader of that group. I'm like, what? I've never been a facilitator. What are you talking So, but they had seen the changes in me to the point where I had become that person. Mm -hmm. And so when groups, the hard groups like ARC and Hustle 2.0 and Defy came into and they challenged why why can't you see yourself ever coming home? What are the things that you think that will keep you? Why can't you challenge yourself? And like these 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 stubborn pieces embedding this into your brain, like, wait a minute. So one and which brings me to what I was telling you earlier, in one of these groups, um, in order to give us hope, one of the uh, facilitators started reading up a bunch of names of people that had were doing life terms that were whose sentences had were commuted, and and the governor basically told them you don't have to do your entire term. This is you're gonna get a chance to go home now. They vacated their, you know, the they, and we were like, man, he's in a level two. This guy's in a level three, and. He, he kept bringing out his name, and then he came to the last name, and he goes, well, I want to tell you guys something. It was a guy that was here in Pelican Bay. Um, he spent 20 years in the hole. Um, his entire life, he, you know, he, was, he had been incarcerated since, I believe, 16 or 17 years old. And he goes, and he just recently got found suitable, which is different than a commutation. When you get found suitable, that decision is based on a bunch of commissioners uh, set up by the California Department of, of the California. The parole has specific commissioners, ex-wardens, ex-law enforcement. They basically decide whether you, you're you no longer the person you were when you committed the crime. Anyway, so this, when he told me, when he said this guy was here, he got found suitable, and I turned and looked at him, and then he mentions his name. And my jaw dropped. I go, who? And they tell me that this individual's name. And he and he looks at me like, keep in mind, the whole class turns to look at me because I said it kind of loud. I said, who'd you say? And he repeats the name. 
And he goes, why do you know? And like, I was almost shaking. I go, that's my, that was my Sally. I go, what? Yeah, me and him were Sally's in 1993. And the reason I say this is because me and him had experienced uh, uh, not so, not so friendly inter inter exchange with officers. We got basically got beat up in Corcoran one time and we retaliated. And when you retaliate, you never win, especially not against officers. <laughs> and so I can remember the first thing I'm thinking of, are you sure? And was, dude, he's right now in immigration. He's been found suitable. He's just in immigration right now. He's, he's almost going to be. And the feeling that, that went through me first was shock and disbelief. But I went from being a person who's thinking like, they'll never let me go, to thinking, if this individual got found suitable, is it possible that I could get found suitable? Had he changed his life to the point where, like, I knew that he had changed his life to the point where he got found suitable. The commissioners don't let people out unless they believe you're no longer a threat. Mm -hmm. This is not like you did your time. We had life sentences. A life sentences, you got a possibility of coming out, but that's up to commissioners. And you have to meet the base term. I had already passed the base term, but because I had in my mind had that negative voice that because in my past, I had such a dark past that they say, no, and you're still in Pelican Bay, they're not going to let you out. And I remember hearing them say, talk about my friend got found suitable. I, I remember going back to the first time. I can't remember ever crying of happiness. I was so happy, but I had like this mixed feeling. I was envious, kind of, why can't that be me? What, like, what did, what has he done that I haven't done? And I started saying, why can't I one day be free? Mm. And so I was thinking to myself, what haven't I done? That what have what changes haven't I done that would convince the board that I'm no longer that 18-year-old stupid gangbanger, that lost gangbanger who's lost in drugs and everything. And, and I I it took me a while to remember the last time I got in trouble in prison. And lo and behold, my counselor saying, you know, you have a parole coming up soon. I go, I know. Are you ready? I go, and I was looking at her like, not really, man. I'm kind of scared. He goes, and I remember her telling me that, um, is there any, <laughs> she led herself. I remember the first opening that happened. He goes, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, have you ever written a letter of recommendation? I go, no, I've never written for anybody. But I remember her potting and saying, but I will write one for you. And oh, I wow. and 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 I was like in shock. I go, you will? And she goes, yes. Okay, thank you. But keep in mind, I had I was already for your setting up a, a parole board packet. And what and I, and thanks to the groups that I had been with, especially with Kat, I had envisioned myself where I would be if I was ever let out free. Mm -hmm. I provided details, uh, job offers. I provided addresses, voucher, like all certified. And for years, I have been working on that thanks to Hustle 2.0 and ARC. And so now I have people within the institution that knew me for years. This wasn't a person that was going to write a letter and say, oh, I've known him for six months. And he says hi to me every day. He's a good person. Right. This, this was a person that had my case file on her computer for the last, and I had the same counselor for over six years. She saw the transformation happening. And she constantly would tell me that you're you're doing good. And I remember when she said that I, 
that I was the first person she would ever write a letter for. And I was like, that in itself, like, gave me so much confidence. I guess so. You know, and then my boss of five years said the same thing. She heard this conversation because this conversation took in an office where I worked as a clerk. Yes. And and she asked me, Ken, is there anything I could do for you? And sure enough, she and a a correction lieutenant puts his reputation on the line and goes, so when you're going home? And I I would laugh. I would smile at him. I go, no, I'll go to the port pretty soon. And guess what? He tells me, is there anything I could do for you? Oh, man. And I'll, because it goes, I will never do this, but I've never done it, but I've known you, Batista. And like, keep in mind, this is somebody who sees me every day at my job. And so I, the last two years prior to going to the board, I'm experiencing a vote of confidence from not only my peers, the inmates are saying, hey, but if they don't let you out, they're not going to let everyone. But they were saying this based on the person they had seen on the yards for the last eight to 19 years who had really didn't get involved in drugs and prison politics, that went to work every day, that got his GED, got two vocations, did every single program there for years and years and years. But I was happy with myself. And I remember one of the things that Kat would tell me, let them see that person. Mm-hmm. The things that you shared over the years about the crime, the harm that you committed, let them see that. Make sure that they know how you feel. Make sure, like, and they would drill these things into me. And the more, the closer the board they got closer and closer. And mind you, to this day, nobody in PR had ever got granted suitability. Nobody has got a parole grant. And I remember walking in and, and going through the whole process I experienced something that I unexpected was I had, I basically faced, no, I faced my, the family of my victim. Mm-hmm. And I remember a voice telling them, don't hold back, make sure. And by that, I'm, that I was telling them, don't minimize what you did. Don't try to justify it. Because my first reaction, like, oh, I don't want to say how graphic it was. I don't want to say how I shot him. I don't want to say this in front of his mom. Like the, that voice was telling me, but I, I still remember, no, that's not taking accountability. No matter how much you don't want to say it, you have to be truthful. And I remember owing and walking the commissioners to the crime, knowing that my victim's family was hearing it. I was essentially making them relive the worst day of their lives. And I remember shaking. It, it must have shown how, how contrite I was and said, if this was... Because I, the first parole board here and I had gone 10 years prior, they were not there. They didn't want nothing to do with it. And I wasn't, I didn't know that they would be there until the moment I walked into the, the conference room and I sat down and I noticed their name on the computer. And I started shaking. I said, oh no, oh no. And, and, and I remember going through the process of the hearing and I felt so relaxed to the point where I felt like I wasn't those years. I was in a cruise where I opened my heart out, and when I shed tears and I, I, I spoke of every detail, I made sure that they knew that none of that justified anything that I ever did to this family, and that I knew every single day when they asked me, "Well, how did you came to this?" and I walked them through how, after many years of being so lost, that when the personal tragedy happened to my family, it connected me in a real personal way to the harm I did. It opened and, you up. 
Yes, and I was able yeah. to walk him through everything. As much as I will share with you or with anybody in my life, I tell him, you know, it's so exhausting to try to pretend to be a person that uh, where you hide feelings, where you hide traumas. When you don't hold none of that inside, it's such a freeing experience because I worked at trying to dump all of that when it was in different settings, different groups. It didn't happen overnight. It happened for many, many years of different programs. And having done that for so long, by the time I sat down, I unloaded all the, the, the guilt that I had. I've acknowledged the harm I committed in a real way. And, and I, I was very contrite and remorseful for, that, for the harm I had committed for so long. And so then the process of whether they believe I had um, stability factors in my life, whether I had matured, whether I have acquired responsibility. And when they sat there and went over, because everything is kept in record on a computer called a C5. They had seen years, they had seen the person I worked with was, what happened between this year all the way to today? Something happened. And that's the moment where I was able to share what happened to my brother. And he goes, and they sat there and they listened to me and goes, well, how did you face the pressures? Uh, it wasn't easy, but it, it happened gradually. I didn't make an announcement. Hey, guess what? I'm going to change my life. No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you go through little steps and you become more confident and you start developing this personality or you become more confident, with, comfortable with the person you become. And the person I had became was somebody who took his responsibility seriously, who didn't who didn't like uh, uh, talking negative with people. I didn't participate in any, anything that had to do with drugs. I didn't drink. It's just something that came so naturally and more and more. I just, I, I really wanted to be a good human being. And I didn't want to be remembered as a person who caused so much harm. It was to the point, I remember one specific conversation. This is one of the biggest couplets I ever had. We were in a day room and we were having a conversation. And one of the guys from my group looks at me. He keeps staring at me. He goes, hey, homie, what are you in here for? <laughs> and I tell him, and he looks at me, man, I can never see you hurting anybody. Yeah. Like, I really can't. And I remember looking at him, and like, I remember why I held back a tear, like, damn, well, that's like, like you're you're such a different you're such a good person. He tells me, <laughs> and, and and I remember jokingly saying, "What's up, fool?" <laughs> like I remember playing around, like to trying to uh, like mask the pride that I, the the joy that I was feeling inside for him saying that. And so I, and going back to the parole board process, I remember being able to explain you know, and the harm the pain that I went through, the harm and the years of growth and how responsible. And then when it came to the people that vouched for me, now you have not only my family, well, a family member where I was vouched for you. They were always going to love you. Right. But for a correction officer, how, do, how does the person who wants assaulted correction officers actually works around brass? Now, I was working around sergeants and lieutenants being a, a clerk, the person in, in charge of ordering all the cleaning supplies of like I had so many responsibilities. So they said you went, you came from a person like this to this. How did that happen? 
And so I knew the hearing was going good because they seemed like, per, like, how did this happen? Because we see from this year to this year, you have all this. And from this year to this, there's not, this is a whole different person. They're telling this about me. These are the commissioners now. And I remember being able to walk them through it. I didn't have to. And I told them, I told them, hey, there was times where I had thoughts like, hey, you know, I feel like harming this person. But what was different is how I managed that anger. And and lo and behold, I have it. And it worked for me. And I kept doing it over and over and over. And then the small things didn't bother me. I sacrificed what the emphasis or the importance I put to respect and pride. Because people say, oh, you disrespected me for the smallest thing. Now I got to fight you. Now I got to stab you. Pride was something like I didn't. I, I, I was easily offended. I wasn't easily offended no more. I didn't care what the world thought about me. Every shameful thing that ever happened to me, had I had already dumped in many groups, and people still loved me. People didn't think of me differently. And I, 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 that's why I would say I was, I was already free inside before I ever became physically free. And mm-hmm. and that's the one thing that you know, you, you could you could even ask John or Kat and uh, both mutual friends that we have, and they met me years ago and how I was. And they see me today. They look at me. Wow, who's this person? <laughs> but it, and and a lot of that had to do with. When I when I felt when I really felt like any shame that held me back from becoming a good person or a recluse, I dumped all of that and and I became a person who doesn't resort to violence. I I don't I don't even entertain it. That's not even an option. Um, a person who I I I started to love myself as a human being. And I don't, I don't think I've ever, I ever did. There was always some level of shame that I felt towards myself or anger or uh, I was, I was, it took, it was the hardest thing for me to forgive myself. I could forgive other people for the harm they did for me, but I think forgiving myself, I really had to dig in and deep and why it was that I felt the way I did about myself. And once I reached that plateau, when once I get then I think I became very confident in who I became later on in life. And when the commissioners came back and they said, we don't believe you're the same person. Your, the, your peers say that about you. The, the people you counseled in there say that about you. Your teachers, the chaplain, the lieutenant, your counselor, all these people say that you're not that person. And when he said, we, we're gonna, we don't believe you, you, you pose a reasonable risk to society and we're finding you suitable for parole today. And I was just shocked. And I, they kept telling me the details of the conditions of that crime. Right and, there on the spot, they made the decision, yeah, huh? Yes, they didn't even take like an hour. They came back and, and I was just crying. I remember just telling them, thank you, thank you. And then I, I, I kept pinching myself because I didn't want to express this joy. I was still crying because the victim's family was hearing this decision and they didn't want them to grant me a parole. So they took time and told the victim's family saying, look, I'm sorry it didn't turn out the way you wanted, but we took into account what you what you read to the record, what you wanted us to do. But by law, this guy is not the same person, and we played all the factors line up, and he's he does not pose a threat to society. And I remember when it finished, there was an officer there sitting, and he's looking at me with a smile on my face, 
And his face, he said, looking at me, I'm like, and I remember not trying to gloat. And I remember being sad because I kept thinking these people are going back home and having to process this. My, my victim's family. And it, it took me a while for me to feel any kind of joy. I really did feel real bad. And I, I had to talk to a friend about this. And I said, man, I don't know why I'm not happy. It's because you and, have an empathy. And it took me a while. And John, personally, I, I called him directly. And John knew before, <laughs> before I even called him that I had got found suitable. And I was telling him, John, John, like, I don't, I, don't, I feel weird. Wait, John is already out of prison John, right now. Yes. Yeah. He had been out already for over a year or so in working with as a curriculum writer for Hustle 2.0. Okay. And he was a, it was a very good accountability partner for me. And he, he walked me through a lot of things that he felt I needed to work on. And so when that, when that was, when I was given my grant, I can remember walking with being escorted back to the general population. And I remember I had to go to work that day and I walked in the court and I was in disbelief. My coworker tells me, what happened? I got a grant. And his face is, what? Like, it was like unbelievable. Like, it, it, and so I'm like, dude, what the? And my, the, uh, it, it spread right away. By the time I went back to my building, People that knew I was going to the parole that day were looking out, and I just went like, I, just, I would just say that, and I knew it. Everybody said, I knew it, I knew it. Like, mm. and then, mind you, these were people of different races that came to my door to congratulate me. And, you know, I remember waking up the next morning crying, but I was more sad. And, and I remember the guy passing that will hand out the lunches for breakfast. He had no, but he, we didn't have a good friendship. And he looked in and said, Hey, homie, are you? I heard you got a grant, like it spread so fast. And I go, and I had tears coming down my eye. He goes, Hey, what's up, homie? I go, nah, man, I, I have I'm having a hard time being happy. I told him. Because I just kept thinking of my of my victim's family. And he told me, it's okay. And I remember he he turned very empathetic. He goes, It's okay, homie. It's okay. Dude, let it out. Like this is a hardcore gang member with tattoos and everything. <laughs> and he's telling me, let it out, homie. It's it's good. You're good. Because at that time I didn't have a Sally, I was by myself when I got my grant. And I just I just remember he still and he still had to pass lunches for the rest of the tier, but he stopped and made time for me and he sat and he stood there with me until I let it out. And I could I, I could just imagine what the other guys on the church say, man, where's he passing out the lunches? <laughs> <laughs> he deliberately stopped and he congratulated me. And for that, I sat there in the prison cell for, for the next uh, couple of months until it went through the process where their bosses approved the grant. They supervised the transcripts. And then I had to wait more months for the governor to whether he was going to take action and reverse it. So it was an excruciating five months wait to, for it to be finalized. Wow. And with, with each passing month that I didn't get a, 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 a denial, like a, they were going to rehear it, I started because then finally the, I remember the parole lady came and say, guess what? I got your date. The governor's not taking action again, so you're going home. And that just, that felt very surreal for me. And, and yeah, to this day, that, and now, the, speaking of acclimation, a lot of things have changed since I, I was last a free man. I was. Wait, hold on. Before, before you go into that, I don't want to miss this thing that we talked about in our phone our initial phone call you had told me how you were able to let go of the guilt and I forget what you said but it was very profound 
So a lot of the guilt that I carried when, when I had, like as I shared with you, some the the how the parole board for me wasn't such a very happy thing. It was so for everyone around me seemed so jovial and happy and everything there because they had never, especially in my family. But I had a hard time matching up to that same level of happiness because I I, I seen I heard it in their voice the pain that 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 was deeply embedded in my mind. And so I remember friends, uh, my friend, and he's a facility for ARC, told me, homie, you have to allow yourself to let it go. Because in, and one of the things that I had, one of the steps and one of the CGA uh, steps, he tells me, he, he especially said, look, guilt is like a poison. You're good, no good to anybody feeling bad. You're not good to anybody. He goes, because those that do you remember how you retreated into yourself, how how you expressed your guilt, you kept it inside and you lashed out, and it essentially became a poison inside of me of my being, and I remember it sinking in. And he was reassuring, "You deserve this. You you have no." He didn't say you deserve. It. He said you've earned this. You've earned the shot at becoming a part of humanity again. And I remember like how much deeply it hit me and then so you're right you know guilt for so long had kept me had kept me from becoming a person I, I i became like um I, that was creeping in again and i needed that reassurance that you know it's okay you know you you were shown mercy and now earn it for the rest of your life and that when he said earn it for the rest of life he was basically saying transform it transcend that into something that you could do for your fellow man mm -hmm. prove that you earned it and i go yeah i could do that you know and and that guilt just started slowly evaporating you know i still i still carry i still carry guilt but it's very healthy now it's not a guilt that where i internalize it it's more a sense of motivation to never going back to how i used to think and how i used to be my family means the world to me and I never, and I'm all more for, um, I, I promote healing and rehabilitation, even in the worst of the prisons. And I was able to do it in one of the worst prisons. I don't, um, I know I'm the exception to this point, but if I was able to do it and I, I, I could, I could highlight every single step from my friend being, I remember experiencing real hope when my friend got found suitable and I heard it to doing the work, to the officers patting me in the back, to my peers patting me in the back, to my counselor, like, do you know how? And that transformation became so real that other people around me saw it. I wasn't doing it for the purpose of the board. I was doing it because I, I was, I wanted to be free of all the guilt that I carried out for so so many years. And I, and I believe that's the part that it, it was to me, it was like a poison. And I felt like I had perked myself with a poison and I was a, I was a content person, human being by then. Mm. I just have all of these ideas of, of classes that you could give, of, <laughs> you know, all of the, the ways that you changed. And this is so wonderful. And we're, we are, we need to wrap it up. Yes. Of um, course. And probably you know like having another interview about a little lo longer down the line you've only been out for two months right no I, i'm going i'm 
in a couple of days it'll be six months oh six months okay yes yes, yes. And, still and... still very uh no, yeah, I'm, it's it's taking me a while to acclimate myself, and I still have little phobias, and and it's a lot of that had to do with all the the the, the extremely long time I was in prison, and humans out here are very different than in there. <laughs> right, you have to. You're learning how to survive outside. So at this at this moment, I'm a work in progress, and who knows? Maybe in the future we could update. We I could update you on uh, the the things that I have experienced as as a pre man. It's very recent. I'm still going through the 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 phase where everybody's happy to see me, and they're being fragile around me, and they're making sure that my mental health is good. And so in that in that part. Um, I'm very grateful because I, there's still things I'm dealing with now as a free man, and and I, there there hasn't been enough distance to where I could look back in retrospect like oh I experienced this this way because they're still happening to me presently. Right. And right. Maybe still... it, and maybe in the future we could have an update as to how I'm how I was able to cope with my reintegration. I would love that because I know that I went and lived, you know, it was a choice. I went and lived in South Columbia. America for a year in Colombia and I came back and that re-entry, I was only gone for a year and that was, that kicked yes. my butt. Yes. Imagine 32 years. Yeah. It's, uh, but you I know, can't, can't even. No, but, but, you know, and then I want to thank you for having me in a, and maybe in a future episode, we'll, we'll, well, I'll be gladly to update you because that would mean that I've, I've adjusted better and we could look back in retrospect of the things I've gained since I've been out. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Jorge, thank you, thank you so much. This is and an audience. I know we went over time, but like I said, this is a this is not an everyday story that we hear. And I just really am appreciative for you, all the work that you did to get to where you are today, Jorge. Thank you. And, Thank and, and you I too. can't, I just can't wait to see, you know, how many people you're going to help through your own. I mean, you were already a role model in prison and now you're outside and how many more people you can impact and influence through, through everything that you have yeah. done and become, you know, yeah. even in, including the bad things because you wouldn't have become this person without that and i'm not saying that that i'm glad that you did it all i'm saying is that you have all of the ingredients has turned you into this person that is a force that understands think... humanity and has a, an empathy and and a and a, a drive to really make change absolutely well, thank you for having me. And I think that is one of the things where I get uh, my sense of uh, worth is that, that somehow I'm still connected and with the, the sort of group, help, group and help that I got in there and what was given to me freely, I am more willing to give back because, you know, it, it, it makes no, it, it's there's nothing more sad for me that somebody who has has all the ingredients or all the the 
the things that would make somebody change or help and just keep it to yourself. No, that that's it, it does nobody no good that that way. So that's that is my goal to continue and hope to in the same way hope was given to me, I, I would I would do it any day of, of the week of, for the rest of my life. Okay, Jorge. Thank okay. you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you, and you have you have a very nice day, Julie. Thank you for having me. Okay, thank you. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, Take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one -on -one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.